I think, I think we've got everyone who's coming. So, um, all right. So uh, last week we talked about kind of religion, generally speaking, um, and asking that question, what is religion? And really that's a question of um, what is the meaning of everything, right? Um, and each, each religion really is a way of answering that question of what is the meaning of life. Um, so Christianity's answer, really briefly, right, because I spent the whole time talking about this last week, was essentially um, what we call divinization. So to become like God in heaven, that this is done both in the present life and it's completely fulfilled in the next life. And um, that means that the afterlife, the understanding of the afterlife in Christianity is really quite unlike any other religion's claim to the afterlife. One, we're united to the divine, we're united to God, but we also maintain our individuality. Um, also, our afterlife is not awful. <laughs> if you look at the conceptions of the afterlife in a lot of the earlier religions, uh, especially the pagan religions that preceded Christianity and Judaism, it wasn't pleasant, but I'll talk more about that later. Um, so to really understand Christianity, we really need to go back in time a bit. So today, what we're talking about is just Christianity in general, um, as compared to other religions that have come and, and gone and stuck around on this earth. Um, so by looking at these things from the past, that'll help us understand why humans worship, right? Why there's something in us that seems to drive us to seek out the divine. Um, it will help us to understand why Christianity and Judaism are radically different from the other things we see in the world. And continuing down that path, we'll look at how Christianity is different from Judaism as well. There's a lot of similarities between those two, but um, there are differences. So we're going to start with ancient religious practices. Now, these, get, <laughs> these are fascinating. All right. So I'm not talking just pre-Christianity. I'm talking pre-Judaism. I'm talking multiple thousands of years B.C. here. Okay. So the ancient peoples, a lot of them... Um, even their very understanding of what a god is, is different than ours, right? If you ask these ancient uh, pagans what they understand a god to be, they do not claim that their god is all-powerful. They don't claim that he is all-knowing. Um, they, they just don't understand their deities in that way. Um, their deities were more of a reflection of their own humanity. So, you know, you read these ancient Greek, ancient Roman myths, and, and their gods, they're fighting each other. They're feuding with each other. They war. Some have more power or less power. And if you go further and further back, you see that even in those cultures that precede Greece and Rome, uh, this is the same. Um, like the ancient Sumerians, so the people in the Middle East before the Jews, right? Their gods are kind of crazy. And um, anyways, so what these gods did have was the power to bless in some way or to incur their wrath on people. And so 
um, that's that's what their power was and why they care, why the people cared about them. And often you have very similar gods across many civilizations with strikingly similar attributes. So, you know, Zeus is like the head of the Greek pantheon, but it's basically, he's the same guy as Jupiter in Rome. And if you go further and further back, you even see someone like Zeus in the Middle East. Um, I forget exactly the correlation between the, the gods because I'm not a scholar of that stuff, um, but you do see him cropping up. Basically, he looks like Zeus, he sounds like Zeus, he just isn't called Zeus, but he's a god of lightning and seems to be in charge of all the other gods. Um, but even him, you know, they understood him as the most, is, is like the chief of this pantheon of gods. Um, they didn't understand him to be one who creates. They didn't understand him to be no, all-knowing and all-powerful. Um, and oftentimes, the God that's worshipped in a place is limited to either that particular place or to those particular people. Okay. So that was kind of their understanding of the gods. And so the reason they worshiped the gods, as I mentioned, is because the gods had power to bless or have wrath on people. And so they wanted to appease that deity, either um, to receive the benefits from them um, if they had a kindly deity, or basically to, you know, call off the dogs, so to speak, if their deity was not so friendly. Um, and if you look in the most ancient of religions, it was always fertility, um, some sort of god of fertility that was one of the earliest gods, excuse me, one of the earliest gods in every civilization because the propagation of the people and the propagation of the crops were always the two most important things for that community to survive. Right? And so you see these ancient peoples worshiping some sort of fertility god, probably as their earliest, and they probably have more than one. Um, they eventually have other gods they develop over time. So um, you have the, the gods of war uh, that they would worship for success in battle or that they'd try to appease so that they don't lose in battle. Um, you know, basically, um, wars in those days would sometimes become contests to the people. It's like, well, my God is stronger than your God, and that's why we won the war, you know. Um, or you'd have um, certain gods who are, they, they called it wisdom, but it's really technological knowledge that they wanted, right? Um, so Athens, they wanted knowledge, um, and so they'd worship Athena, who was this goddess of knowledge, right? And so then if you look at how this worship was done, that's kind of fascinating too. Um, if, you, if you look at archeology span and ancient religious texts, you can start to develop a picture of how worship has been done. Um, in its most basic form, worship would take the form of some sort of communal meal, all right? Um, the community would gather and they'd participate at this meal together. And they desired to make a hospitable environment for that deity so that deity would come and join them and so that they could find favor with that deity. Um, oftentimes, something was chosen to be sacrificed, um, that is, to be set apart and prepared for the deity to, um, you know, eat at the meal. Um, kind of like the idea of, you know... Um, 
my parents will make my favorite, well, if I lived further from my parents and only saw them like twice a year, mom would make my favorite thing or whatever she thinks my favorite thing is, right? Um, she usually makes pretty good stuff. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anything about my mom, but, um, you know, mom will make like your favorite thing if, you, if she doesn't see you very often if you come home. It's kind of like that idea, something pleasing that will make them happy. Um, and then the entire community would participate in that meal um, that's actually at the core of the ancient worship is there's a meal and we participate in it and in the acts around it. So in many cases, the sacrifices were some form of crop or animal, um, but in some cultures you do actually see human sacrifice, which means cannibalism, right? Like it's more widespread than we'd ever want to admit. Creepy. Don't like that stuff. <laughs> Um, and um, at these worship banquets that they'd have, um, they would generally perform acts that they thought the deity would find pleasing. Um, so a lot of times, especially in the Middle Eastern religions, which is where Judaism comes out of, um, this means there's a disregarding of social rules and mores. Um, and like, for example, who you married to, who isn't a big deal, and if you just kind of think about that a bit, that'll tell you what's going on at these things. Um, the same kind of thing that happened at the Golden Calf, in fact. So, um, so that's kind of the form of these ancient worship services. Um, they did have some other various um, religious type actions. They would build temples, uh, things like that. The temples kind of came a little bit later as they had more and more permanent places to make this worship. Um, and when we see temples, we also definitely start to see idols being made. Um, so uh, I'll talk about idols in a second, actually. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. <laughs> and then um, when you have temples and you have idols, you also see priesthoods being established, okay? Um, the uh, temples were understood to be a place where that deity lived because the temple would house an idol of that deity. Um, the idol was understood to be like a face of the deity. Um, so the ancient peoples were a little more sophisticated than sometimes we give them credit for. You know, they weren't stupid. <laughs> um, so they recognized that like, it's probably not the entirety of this God that lives in the idol, but they did say it was some sort of like instantiation or face of that idol. Um, and oftentimes it was one uh, localized for that particular place. So it's like our local version of this God is who this idol is. Um, and like I said, it's pretty common to see the same God under different names with slightly different uh, features and things like that about them. And so then you have priests established to care for these temples and for these idols because the idol needed to be dressed, it needed to be fed. I'm not exactly sure what they thought was going on with the feeding, <laughs> you know. Um, like I said, they weren't dumb, but some of this stuff, it's like, okay, so I'm missing some information into how this all worked. Um, and the priests would attend to those various ritual actions and religious services that were offered at the temple. So over time, it wasn't the entire community gathering every single time, um, but the priests would act on behalf of that community. Um, in these ancient times, you do see female priests in many of the religions. 
um, especially when you have service to female deities. Um, and that could go one of two ways. Either you have something like the Vestal Virgins in Rome, where their virginity was protected by law, and if a violation was found, um, they would bury the woman alive and they would club the man to death. <laughs> so they had some great motivations to stay that way in, in Rome. Um, uh, but more commonly, especially in the Middle East, um, you would see uh, temple prostitution, essentially. So uh, temples in service of Aphrodite were places that had this a lot um, associated with them. So, yeah, and a lot of, yeah, it was a mess. So um, life in general in these ancient religions, it was important to remember, um, it is important to remember that especially in these ancient days, there's not even a concept of religion being something, a separate part of our life. Right? These days we can kind of put religion in a box over here, the rest of our life is over here. Um, but that's uh, not something you really saw in these ancient religions so much. Um, the calendar, the way that you did business with the people around you, the way you raised your kids, um, everything was touched by your religion. Um, everything you did had a religious aspect to it. And so when that meant that if you changed where you lived, then you probably changed who you worshiped and you changed how you acted. Um, just because, okay, these are the gods here, these are the gods there. If I'm going there, these are the gods I'm gonna have to worship. Um, so then when you look at like the treaties that tribes and nations and empires would sign uh, with one another, they would invoke like a whole bunch of gods, right? And they'd try to find gods that at least were kind of similar between the two cultures, um, right? So you'd like have Zeus witness your treaty or Poseidon witness your treaty. And um, you'd also say like, uh, they call down the curses of Poseidon on you. You know, that would be really bad if you're a seafaring nation, right? Um, if you were to break this treaty, uh, something like that. Um, and if you look at the various communities, the, the, the deity that they chose as their patron could tell you a lot about how that community was going to be. So, like, you've got Sparta, right? And the gods that they worship are gods of conflict and gods of war. So that's what their whole society is built around. From the very beginning of your life, that's the thing that you're doing. Um, like I mentioned, Athens, you know, they have Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Their whole thing is this pursuit of knowledge and philosophy, right? Um, I looked up Rome because I was curious. Rome's a bit more of a conundrum because they don't really have one main deity that they worship. They're, they're super polytheistic. And uh, it, in Rome, the idea was generally the more the merrier on the gods. Um, if they found a god, they're like, yeah, we'll worship this one too. Uh, anytime they took over a new city, a new um, nation, uh, they blasted out an empire and took it over. They're just like, yeah, bring us your gods. We'll worship them too. Um, but if you look at the most important gods in Rome, you have Jupiter, who, like I mentioned, is basically Zeus with a new name. Um, and he kind of stood for authority and order, which was always something very important to the Roman people. Um, 
Vesta, who was the god worshipped by those Vestal virgins, um, was the goddess of hearth and home and family. And she was considered to be a virgin herself, hence why they had the Vestal virgins in Rome. Um, and that's one of the most ancient things. That goes back to the second king of Rome. Um, so they had five kings in Rome. Um, the fifth king was really terrible, so they killed him and basically said, if anybody even pretends that they want to be king, uh, we're going to kill you, uh, and started the republic. <laughs> so uh, they really didn't like the monarchy from that. That fifth king was really bad. Um, but anyways, this, this, the Vestal Virgin, that worship of Vesta is very ancient, um, was very ancient in Rome. And then um, that second king of Rome who established a lot of these practices. So he was, I forget his name, but he was the one right after Romulus, you know, who is um, supposedly the founder of Rome and all that. Um, he had some sort of devotion to either a nymph or a goddess named Ageria who gave him great wisdom and law. So you see that as an important part of Roman culture too, right? So, so these deities that are important to a culture kind of tell you a lot about how that culture was structured. <laughs> of course, I left the afterlife a blank bullet, um, but <laughs> I was in a hurry when I wrote this. But the afterlife in a lot of these pagan religions, there's similarities and differences, but generally what you have is there is a deity of the underworld who's kind of in charge down there, and they're never really happy about being down there, so they kind of inflict that on everybody else, and it's pretty much just where everybody goes, right? Um, and the term hell that we have in English is a derivative of what you used to call the underworld, and generally Hellas, I believe, and, and the old German or something to that effect. And basically everybody went there. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of hope for a good afterlife. Now, if you were rich and powerful, generally that meant you were probably gonna be okay. Um, and sometimes that meant that your version of hell wasn't gonna be quite as bad as everybody else's, right? So nobody was looking super great. Now, then eventually you have um, things where they start to worship the emperor. So you have Egypt um, where the uh, Pharaoh is considered divine. Um, some of the Middle Eastern uh, empires, you get that. And then Rome, starting with Julius Caesar, they have emperor worship. Um, and so, like, basically, out of all the millions of people who live in their empire, only one of them doesn't go to hell <laughs> at any given time because the emperor becomes a god and the gods don't go to hell unless, you know, they really screwed up. So, um, yeah, the afterlife did not look good in those days. <laughs> um, so that's kind of an outline of what you'd see in these ancient religions um, ancient paganism, those sorts of things. And that's the kind of world that Judaism responds to, okay? So Judaism grappled with these things before Christianity did because Judaism is more ancient than Christianity. It came first. Um, 
Just a couple of notes. So with Judaism, one of the sources we use is the Bible. Uh, what we call the Old Testament was simply the sacred scriptures for them. Um, and we're going to talk about the Bible um, in a few weeks when I, when I talk about Revelation and that kind of stuff. Um, but primarily right now, I'm using it for its historical material and what it tells us about the cultures and civilizations of the time. Um, the Bible actually has more manuscripts and more attestations to its accuracy than most other ancient uh, texts that we have of these times. Um, if you look at like the works of um, Plato, uh, you know, the Socratic dialogues that Plato wrote down, um, there's like, well, there's a lot more evidence for the Bible than there is for that, right? And nobody ever doubts that Plato exists. Okay, um, so it's, it's considered to be a fairly accurate um, place to find that stuff, considering the times and the information we have. Um, there are some other uh, Jewish writings from that time, but I'm not versed in them, so I'm not using them. Um, now then, okay, so there's an engineer in the back of my head that makes me have to get technical sometimes, all right? so. There's a difference between Israelite and Jew, okay? Um, Israelite is um, all of the 12 tribes. Uh, at some point, it becomes more like the northern 10 tribes, uh, which uh, the 12 tribes are the 12 sons of Jacob and the, the, their descendants, right? Um, each son has a different tribe after him. So the, the southern tribes are the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and then the northern tribes are all the other ones, and I don't remember all their names. <laughs> okay. Um, Jews, strictly speaking, are descendants of the tribe of Judah. We use the term interchangeably a lot because the Assyrians came in around the 700s BC and wiped out the 10 northern tribes. Um, they either exiled them, uh, forced them to intermarry, or just killed them all, right? Depending on which city it was. Um, so, so for some context, right, 700s BC, um, the kingdom of Israel was 300 years old, and so the northern kingdom fell after 300 years, basically. Uh, Rome had just been founded. At this time, Romulus was still the king, so they hadn't even developed these religious practices in Rome I was just talking about. Um, and the, uh, the republic was still 200 years in the future from them, right? Um, so this is a long, long, long time ago. Um, so you have Jewish people who are the descendants of the tribe of Judah, but they're pretty much the only ones left after the Assyrians. You have Israelites, which is a larger group that includes all of them. And then if you want to get even more expansive, you have descendants of Abraham, um, which includes various other kind of nations that you see pop up uh, in the Bible at various points. Excuse me, I think I'm about, nope, since I said something, I won't sneeze. Okay, I might sneeze soon. Just a warning. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, anyways, that's enough about the Bible for now. We'll talk more later. Um, the Jewish conception of God was very different than the pagan conception of God. So the Jewish people, uh, the Israelite people, they took a while to get there, but eventually over time, 
they finally understood there is only one God and he created everything. It really did take them a long time to figure this out. Um, they also realized from very early on they were not to make idols of this God. Um, there's several reasons for that. So idols were believed to give some sort of power over a God, right? Um, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but God refuses to be tamed. And anytime they made an idol, it went very, very poorly. <laughs> uh, he got wily and had some fun with them. Um, also, when you make an idol, it can give people the mis mistaken notion that God is like a human, and he's not. He's not like us. He's more not like anything we've experienced than like anything we've experienced. One of the, um, I forget who wrote it, but one of the very ancient uh, fathers of the church basically wrote a whole thing saying, basically these are all the ways that we do not understand God, but from that knowledge of what he's not, we can actually learn from it. Um, so that's, you know, when we say that God is all-powerful, we mean that there are no limits on his power. When we say he's all-knowing, there are no limits on his knowledge. Um, so it's kind of, but for us, positive knowledge works a little better than negative knowledge. Um, let's see, they did believe um, that God could grant blessings. They certainly believed he could incur his wrath on people who pleased or displeased him. Um, but there was always an order, right? Um, it was much less just kind of random like the pagans thought it to be. And then finally, um, God was not limited to a single place. He was not limited to a single race. Um, he was always present to his people. Um, and he can even act through people who do not follow him. And this is another one of the parts of their understanding of God that took them a little while to learn. Um, they, they mostly got it in the Babylonian exile is where they finally got their understanding of God figured out. Um, worship, so as far as worship goes, um, you see similarities to the pagan worship. There are sacrificial banquets in honor of God. Um, they don't sacrifice people. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible about how you're not supposed to do that, <laughs> okay? Um, they also don't have that kind of licentious breaking of social um, orders that would happen at the pagan um, festivals, so to speak, right? There was a bit more order to Israelite worship than that, but there was a sacrificial banquet where the people um, partook of that sacrifice that was made to God. Um, so right, like you can feed a lot of people with an ox that you've just sacrificed, but there were also other kinds of offerings. I'm getting ahead of myself. Hang on. <laughs> okay. Um, so also the goal of worship, they did seek to find favor with God through their worship, um, but it was also simply to give honor and glory to him um, and to thank him for creating them. Um, so we see worship services for the crops um, for the success of the nation, but also simply celebrations around the exodus of Egypt, right? Um, so that great, that great feast of the exodus um, that, that they have every year. Even today, you know, you still see um, Jewish people practicing the Seder meal. That's an outgrowth of that worship of God. 
because anyways, I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit, but right, the Seder meal is an outgrowth of the worship of God because the Jewish people don't have temples anymore. Um, and so that worship has come to the home primarily. Um, you also see um, liturgical action in the synagogues where they study the, the Torah um, and try to understand it more fully. That's one of their, their acts of, of liturgy and worship. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> All right. Um, we had a big bonfire last night, and I think it's starting to get to me a little bit. Um, okay, so a little bit more detail on how they worshiped. Um, so like I mentioned, there was not human sacrifice. Um, and unlike pagan worship, the Israelite people were strictly forbidden from uh, partaking of the blood. Okay? Um, and there's a very particular reason for that. Um, there was an idea that blood carries the life force of a being. Um, and to partake of that blood would grant qualities from that being. So if you're sacrificing an ox to the Lord, um, you don't want to become more ox-like. Um, you want to become more like the Lord. Um, and so the blood is drained out and the animal is given over to the Lord as a burnt offering. Um, but they don't partake of the blood because they don't want to become like oxes. Whereas in the pagan religions, like the deity would take the form of some of these creatures. And so to become like an ox, for example, um, might be really great from a fertility standpoint. So they would partake of the blood in those sacrifices. Um, they had a bunch of different kinds of sacrifices, um, atonement for sin, thanksgiving, um, the type of sacrifice determined what they offered and how they offered it. So for example, you've got the day of atonement, which is a fascinating ritual that would happen. And on the day of atonement, they needed a young bull, a ram, and two goats. All right. So the bull and the ram were sacrificed to atone for the sins, primarily of the priest himself. And they were, their blood was sprinkled in the temple. Then they took the two goats, and by lot, one was chosen, and the high priest would essentially go and speak all of the sins of the people onto the goat, and then someone was chosen to lead the goat out of town and set it into the wilderness, right? The sin is cast out of civilization. It's interesting to note that is not any of the animals sacrificed. So the other goat is sacrificed. Um, Okay, I'm losing, I'm losing my track again here. Okay, the other animal was sacrificed, right? And added to the young bull and to the, um, to the ram and, and all of that. Um, some of these animals were given fully over to the Lord, which means um, they were not eaten at all, uh, simply burned up. Um, again, I don't know the details of the ritual uh, as well as I would, you know, I haven't studied it as much, right? But the, the, the animal with the sin was cast out of the community because that's not something worthy of sacrificing. Um, sin is not something you offer to God. It's only the best things you have to offer that you offer him. You also see something called a Thanksgiving sacrifice, which was an offering of uh, grain cooked into bread and wine. Um, they were often waved before the Lord and then offered in thanksgiving for some great gift that had been given to a people. And before the temple was built, they would do these sacrifices in many places. Basically, as long as it had an altar, you could do these things. 
Um, but as I'll mention a few more times, religious authority centralizes over time in Judaism because abuses keep creeping into the religion, um, usually because the Israelite people get bored of serving God because it's really hard to do that. And so they go find some pagan deity that's a little more fun to serve. Um, Okay, so some other liturgical actions. Um, over time, the practice uh, of the Jewish people develops to recite what's called the Shema daily, uh, twice daily, in fact. Um, and these days, it's three paragraphs of text. I'm not sure if back in the ancient days it was all three paragraphs, but they come from primarily Deuteronomy. I think there's one from another one. Um, but it starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Um, starting with that great proclamation of monotheism, that we only have one God in this country, right? Um, and so it, it goes on to um, say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Um, teach these commands to your children. Speak of them in your house and when you're on the road, when you lie down and when you rise, right? And so this idea that there's one God who we love with everything that we have is something that they are reminding themselves of constantly so that they never forget. Because um, especially after the Babylonian exile, which was in the 600s BC, they never want that again. And so they figure, well, we better actually listen to God this time, <laughs> right? Um, I wrote down the Hebrew because it's cool. Uh, but hero Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, is Shema Israel Adonai Elohein Adonai Echad if I'm saying my Hebrew right. I think it just sounds cool to say that stuff, you know. Um, if you've ever heard um, the guys praying at the Wailing Wall, a lot of times it's the Shema that they're praying. Okay, so uh, once you see the temple built in Jerusalem, that's where they centered all their sacrifice. Oh my goodness, I'm talking a lot today. <laughs> I thought I wrote less. I wrote more. Sorry. Um, so once they built the temple, the sacrifice was centered there. Um, they had temples in other places, but those weren't considered legitimate um, because if you look at what happened in those temples, pagan idols started showing up in them, and they started sacrificing to other gods, and that's not good. Um, it doesn't go well with God when you have pagan idols in his temple. Um, the Jewish people had a strong desire to keep the Sabbath, which was on the um, Saturday, uh, which in English, Saturday is named after Saturn. All of our English weekdays are pretty much named after pagan deities. Um, but in other languages like Spanish, French, Latin, things like that, the day is literally just called Sabbath, right? Um, sabado in Spanish, for example, it, it just, it's literally Sabbath, right? Um, so yeah, our English language is a bit more pagan, I guess. <laughs> um, they, uh, did have a priesthood. Originally this priesthood was the, the priest was the patriarch of the family. There was not a formal ordination, right? Um, it was just considered the, the patriarch or the father of the family's job to do these things. But like I mentioned, abuses started creeping in. So they restricted it. Um, that's what happens at the golden calf incident in Exodus, right? The people start doing whatever. And so the priesthood is restricted only to those who stayed faithful to God. So the Levite tribe, and then that's further restricted to, um, 
the Levite tribe kind of served at temple, and then the descendants of Aaron specifically were made the high priests. And then even over time there, only particular lines of Aaron's descendants are eligible to be high priests. Um, <laughs> I put a note in here that the golden calf incident was more of a traditional worship service in the pagan sense of the term. Um, <laughs> I write jokes to myself in my, my notes here. Um, and then in Judaism, there was a great idea of ritual purity. Um, so there was a lot of washing involved um, to cleanse yourself of those things which were considered to make you ritually impure. I'm going to start moving along a little quicker. Um, life in general, so like the pagans, every facet of life was impacted by religious belief. Um, the day of rest on Saturday, the way that Israelites waged war, what they ate, all of it, right? So the kosher laws, how they ate, that's an important part of life, and it's a religious part. How the Israelite people waged war um, was because... It, like it was different. They were actually a lot more merciful than other people. And I'm not exactly sure where I have this in here. It's got to be in here. Oh, yeah, it's later. Um, there's that wiping out of civilizations. I'm going to get to that in just a minute. Um, but like pagan religions, if you wanted to be an Israelite and live in their land, you were expected to worship their God and live the way they did. Also, Israelites were really bad at following their own beliefs. Um, we get a lot of people who critique Judeo-Christian religion um, because we're bad at following our beliefs. But if you look, it's been that way since the beginning. Our religion is hard and we're really bad at it. Um, you look at the Bible and it tells you this, right? Um, so when there's an archaeological dig that finds pagan artifacts at Jewish sites, it's not really surprising. We knew that was going to happen. Um, people blow it up and out of proportion, but it's like, no, like, there's this whole thing in the Bible where it says over and over again, the people sinned by doing this, right? And they tried to get better. They just weren't very good at it. Um, so let's see. Um, I have a lot in here that isn't that important. Um, yeah, so that's essentially what it was. You see a great... Um, purging of bad habits among the Israelite people after the Babylonian exile, like I mentioned. So the Babylonian exile, the first one was 598, um, and then there was a second deportation in 587, both BC. Um, and then about uh, 50 or 60 years later, uh, from that later date in 539 BC, Cyrus of the Persians let them go back and actually helped them rebuild their stuff. But after they came back from that, um, they finally seem to have gotten the message, there's only one God and we can't worship these other gods. But then you start seeing things like Phariseeism creep in, um, where the form of the worship, um, the form of what we do matters more than what's in our heart. So on the outside, we might look okay, but inside there's no devotion. Um, so that's where you started having problems after that. And then... Um, there's this whole recurring theme in the Bible of the Israelite people wiping out entire villages or peoples, right? Um, and if you dig into it a little bit, um, the reason they do this is because those were what we'd consider giant tribes. Um, so giant tribes is a fun way of saying um, they were particularly bad pagans. <laughs> they were like the worst of the worst. Um, a lot of the pagan deities actually wound up being demons. Um, and so the giant tribes 
would be worshiping these demons specifically, and they'd perform some really bad stuff. A lot of time hum you'd get the human sacrifices in these tribes. Um, and then they'd seek out to be one with that deity. And if you're trying to unify yourself with a demon, that's probably bad news. And so these people were like the worst of the worst. And if that's the kind of activity you're engaging in, it's directly opposed to what um, God, the God of the Israelites, the God of Catholics, right? The same guy, um, directly opposed to him, all right? Um, I won't get too much into the details of that. That could be like a very long talk. Yeah, what's up? Yeah, the Nephilim are also, it's another name for the giants. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's this podcast called The Lord of Spirits, and he's, they've got like one episode that's three hours long where they just talk about the giants. It's fascinating stuff. Those guys are bigger nerds than me on all of this, okay? Um, if you have three hours to kill, like I found it fascinating, a little scary. Um, Lord of Spirits. Yeah, so they're um, Eastern Orthodox priests. Um, so they're, uh, they're Christian, but they're not Catholic. Um, so they have a few ideas that I disagree with. Um, but in that episode, I think they're pretty good. Um, most of the stuff they say in there seems pretty legitimate. Um, okay, so enough of that. And then the Jewish afterlife. Okay, so prior to Christianity coming on the scene, the Jewish afterlife was a bit different um, than what they might see now. Um, and you even in the Bible have these scenes between uh, Jesus and the Jews. So there's differing views on the afterlife, even within Judaism. You got the Pharisees and the Sadducees who dif disagree with each other. Um, but essentially, the predominant view of the afterlife, if there is one, is not quite as bad <laughs> as the pagan view. Um, so... Within Hebrew anthropology, so the way that Hebrews understand uh, human beings to be, you had the flesh, you had um, the spirit, and you had the nephesh, right? Um, which is sort of like a soul, but not really. Um, nephesh translates to throat, um, but that's kind of like what made you who you were. Um, then the spirit is kind of the life breathed into you, and then the flesh is, that one's obvious, right? It's the flesh. Um, and so what they believed is when you died, obviously the flesh goes, right? And so your nephesh descends into this other place that was called Sheol, and in Sheol you were there, but you just kind of fade out, you know, just eventually fade away. It's not as bad as some of the other afterlives, you know. Um, but then there were a lot of Jews who didn't believe in an afterlife, um, which is kind of impressive when you see all the stuff that the Jewish people would do for God if they didn't believe that there was life for them um, after this life, right? Like, these were some devoted people. <laughs> yeah, right there with you. <laughs> Okay, so that's enough about non-Christian religion. And now, of course, this always happens. I spend so much time building up to the Christianity part, I have less time to talk about Christianity than anything else. But I'll um, try and make it quick. So uh, Christianity has its roots in Judaism, so we have a lot of similarities with Judaism. 
Uh, Jesus and the apostle, apostles, apostles were Jewish. Um, and it took them a long time to recognize they were something distinct from Judaism. Um, so at the time Christ was on this world, the 10 northern tribes were scattered. The Jews had returned from exile, although there were several different sects. I mentioned the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You also had, man, I can't say S today, also had what a group called the Essenes, which they think John the Baptist might have been a member of. And they think that, the, that uh, Jesus might have had some ties to them. Um, it's a little debatable. Then you have the Samaritans, which are kind of the people left from the northern tribes, and they're not super great at practicing Judaism. Um, it's a little more of the ancient um, Israelite troubles they still have with the Samaritans. Um, but basically at this point, Judaism is centralized uh, amongst the, the, the descendants of Judah um, because that's what was still there. So... Um, the Bible, right, we, we, we get the Old Testament of the Bible from Jewish scriptures. Um, the, the version of it that we use is called the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the scriptures made in Egypt. Um, and so there are 70 books, which is what Septuagint means, is 70. Um, and then we've added the New Testament writings, um, so writings written either by the apostles themselves or a close follower of them. So like the, the gospel according to St. Luke and the gospel according to St. Mark are really the writings of St. Paul and St. Peter just written down by Luke and Mark um, as they were direct followers of those people. Um, you see books removed from the Jewish canon um, in, uh, you know, around zero-ish BC, the Jews were using the Septuagint generally, um, but over time they removed books from that list and stopped studying them, mostly because they were a bit too Christian and they didn't want to become Christian. Um, at least that's how we see it. They might have a different explanation. Um, they're welcome to that, but I don't know. I'm sticking with mine. <laughs> um, you see something similar with uh, Protestantism. So when Luther comes on the scene. Um, he takes a number of those same books out of the Bible, um, basically because he wants to follow the Jewish Bible more closely. Um, but also he does some stuff with the New Testament too. Um, and primarily it's because if you keep those in there, it's really hard to make your case, right? Again, this is how I see it. His understanding of it is a little bit different. Um, but you do see kind of this fiddling with um, what's considered scripture over time. Um, so I'll be using the Bible similarly in this section for its historical information, a little bit for its theological stuff too. Okay, so in Christianity, we still believe there's one God, just like the Jewish people, but we believe there are three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is what we call a mystery, all right? Um, the smartest minds in all of history have tried to figure this one out, and we can understand a couple of things, but we can't understand it fully. Um, so sometimes you'll see other names for the Trinity. You'll see um, something like Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier, um, but that's not entirely accurate um, because in the work of creation, all three persons of the Trinity are active. In the work of redemption, all three persons of the Trinity are active. And similarly, in the word of sanctification, all three persons are active. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is really the only thing we can call them. Um, 
there's a uh, bunch of videos on YouTube uh, from this guy, um, and it, the channel is called Lutheran Satire, and uh, they have a video on the Trinity that's really funny, but really kind of gets the point across, because um, uh, they keep spouting off all these incorrect teachings about the Trinity, and then uh, you'll have one of the characters say, oh, that's modernism, Patrick, <laughs> you know. It's really funny. Look it up if you want. Uh, it might be, I, I, it's funny to me. It might be funny to you. I don't know. Um, anyways, I'll get more into the Trinity later. Um, the important thing is to remember that we still consider there to be one God. He's three persons, though. Um, and it hurts your brain to think about it. Um, we still uh, believe God to be all-knowing, all-powerful, um, all of those attributes that the ancient Israelites would have applied to him, we still apply to him. Um, at the very beginning, Christian worship and Jewish worship were very much the same things. Um, what we celebrate now that we call the Mass grew out of that, um, from that idea of meal. And you can still see elements of that in the Mass. And when we talk about the Mass, I'll highlight where those are um, but it originated in Jewish temple practices. Um, and in Christianity, we did not have a need for a bloody sacrifice because the sacrifice was our Lord on the cross. Um, and that's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. We don't need anything after that. Um, so that's what the Mass is, is participating in that particular sacrifice. Um, we believe that our church is outside of time, and through her power of memory, she can make those things present to us even now. Um, that's the convenience of having a church that's outside of time, is if something is happening, it's always happening. And so when we celebrate the Mass together, we are participating in that moment of redemption um, that the Lord gave us. Um, Again, it's kind of mystical, and it hurts your brain a little bit to think about it, but that's what we teach about the Mass, um, that when we're at Mass, we're actually not within time. Like, you can look, look at your watch and get time, but the reality is we're present there at that moment of our Lord's sacrifice. Um, there is a communal meal aspect to it, right? That's what the participation and receiving the Eucharist is, right? And so... Um, that is an expression of the community's belief in the fact that that is the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, it's what unifies us. And that's one of the reasons that we're really picky, um, all things considered, um, compared to a lot of other people about who receives it, is because if you don't believe as we do, to receive it is um, not entirely true, right? Because to receive it is to say, I believe the things that these people believe. Um, as the body of Christ. Um, so, um, but even our Mass has more reflections of the ancient religions I mentioned, right? We desire to find closeness with God. We desire to find His favor in our life. And we even follow His way of life um, to try and find that favor with our Lord. Um, I mentioned the stuff about meal, um, except in Judaism and Christianity, um, more so in Christianity, instead of us like having to dress God and feed his idol and things like that, um, he provides for us, right? Um, the, the food for the meal. Um, 
And I go into a whole diatribe about the, that, but we don't need to talk about that today. That'll be for another day. Um, there are some other liturgical actions that kind of spring from Judaism. So the Jewish people would pray that Shema twice a day. Um, in Catholicism, we have something called the Liturgy of the Hours, which um, I'm bound to pray as a priest. A lot of religious communities will pray it. Um, the non-religious community, non-priest people are invited to pray it, but not required. Um, but essentially, it's five different times a day um, that we go and pray psalms and prayers to the Lord. Um, and it's a nice thick stack of four books um, that you use over the course of the year. Um, also in Christianity, we have a daily practice of personal prayer because we recognize that um, God is relational in nature, right? That Father, Son, Holy Spirit indicates that he's relational. And so we should have a relationship with him. And so personal prayer is one of the ways we live that relationship um, by putting ourselves in his presence and asking him to be close to us by telling him like what we need and how things are going, right? We develop that relationship with God, um, that friendship with God, really. Um, and then one of the things that is particularly um, done very well in our diocese here in Wichita is something called adoration, where we go and um, sit with the Lord um, in front of the Eucharist, which I'll get to that because it's kind of actually a weird thing if you think about it and you're not Catholic, right? Um, it's kind of weird. <laughs> um, but we sit with the consecrated host, which is our Lord in the Eucharist, and pray to him there. Um, and it's really great, but yeah, like if I'm not Catholic looking at that, I'm thinking, what are you weirdos doing? <laughs> um, okay, life in general. Um, so in Christianity, just like in Judaism, ancient religion, really, our religion is not meant to be a separate part of our life. Um, we are all called to bring God into creation and bring creation back to God. Um, we are all sent out to make disciples, so to teach other people about who Jesus is so they can be friends with him too, and so that they can go to heaven too. Um, and then we even have kind of a code of conduct. Uh, we call it the Beatitudes, right? Um, the Beatitudes are kind of like the new commandments, right? The, the Ten Commandments don't go away. The commandments of the Old Testament don't go away, but um, our Lord expands on them and shows us a better way forward. So that's like the Beatitudes. Uh, Dr. Scott Hahn said they're the code of conduct for living in the kingdom of God, um, and, and that's a really great way to think of them, is basically as the new commandments. Um, I make a note that Christians are just as bad at Jews at following their own beliefs, right? Um, we're pretty bad at it. We try. We really do try, um, but we fail a lot. Um, and I uh, noted, because uh, I just took the outline from each section so that we can compare them a little more directly, right? Um, we don't make war on the giants anymore, okay? Um, but we still do believe in um, angelic and demonic powers, right? Um, which is what it was at the heart of that war on the giant clans and stuff. Um, we believe in angels. We believe that each of us has a guardian angel. We believe that our Lord sent them to protect us. We also believe that there are fallen angels and we call them demons. Um, and they work against our Lord and they try to drag us down and make us miserable, 
right? Um, they are not nice and they are very malevolent and a lot of people don't believe in them anymore and that's a tragedy because they certainly believe in us um, and they try to cause us problems. Um, they will tempt us and try to get us to choose wrongly and choose things that seem great at the time but really don't bring us happiness, um, right? Um, many of the... Um, many of these demonic influences um, come about either because of or as the cause of really sinful human activity, all right? Um, for example, like, it's easy to pick on something like the Holocaust, right? Um, it was bad. Everybody knows it was bad. I find it hard to believe that that was not the devil himself working through Hitler, right? Um, there was something demonic about it. Um, yeah. So, a couple of new little bonus things that I put in on the Christianity section. I might actually make it. Okay. Um, so, we have Jesus who was born, all right? And that's like the great news of Christianity. And I'm just now getting to it when I have three minutes left, which is totally how, how this always goes for me, all right? Um, so, Jesus became fully human, and we're going to spend an entire talk on this. Um, but that means God became one of us, which is not something you see in any other religion. You do see God's taking human forms, right? But you don't see God's becoming human. Um, so it's a very different thing for Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, right, to become one of us fully. We say he's fully human and fully divine. Another one of those mysteries, but we'll try to plumb some of the depths of that. Um, and that's what we celebrate on Christmas, right? That God became one of us, and because he did that, he can save us, and we can go to heaven. That's why it's so important. Um, the other, but believe it or not, um, that's only the second most important thing, right? Christmas is the second biggest holiday. The biggest holiday for us is Easter, yeah. Uh, the celebration of the Paschal Mystery, um, where we celebrate the passion and death and also resurrection of Jesus, right? So the passion and death have to come for the resurrection to happen. Um, and that's the most important thing because that's what destroys the power of sin and death over humanity and opens the gates to eternal life, right? Um, it's the good stuff right there the Paschal Mystery. Um, so we'll talk about that in more detail later. Because, um, yeah, me spending three minutes is not enough for those things. But we got to mention them. Uh, the Christian afterlife, I already mentioned some things about that. Um, basically, if you take our understanding of the afterlife, where we are unified with God, we are completely fulfilled, we're actually happy, and we get to maintain our individuality, and you compare it to um, hell, hellas, you know, that pagan understanding of the afterlife, or even Sheol, the, the early Jewish understanding of the afterlife, our afterlife doesn't suck, right? And so that was actually a really big draw for the ancient peoples um, 2,000 years ago. And it should be a big draw for us, right? A lot of people will dog on us for saying like, oh, you're only Christian because you want a happy afterlife. I don't think that's a silly reason to be Christian, right? Like, we all want to know what comes after this. It's the great unknown. And if we find something that we believe to be true that tells us a little bit about it, what's wrong with that? 
I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. So um, today I, I did more history, right? Um, I hope it was uh, interesting. Um, I, I did change the schedule a little bit. Um, so next week, instead of like talking about the church and church stuff, we're just going to talk about the gospel. Um, it's this thing called the kerygma, which is a Greek word, and it means the basic teachings of Christianity. Um, and so basically next week, what we're going to talk about is why we were created and how we were created. We're going to talk about the mess that humanity got itself into, because look around, we're in a mess, right? We still are. We have been for a long time. What God did about it and what that means for us, okay? Um, those are the things that we're going to talk about next week. And so next week, we're going to dig into that Paschal mystery I mentioned, because that's a greatly important part of all of that. Um, and its core to so much of the stuff about our faith. So that's what I'm going to talk about next week. Um, and then I think the week after that, um, we're just going to talk about Jesus. There's a lot to talk about about him. And an hour is not enough, but we'll try. So that's, um, that's everything for today. Thank you guys for coming.